0: Good morning. It's good to see everyone. I hope you've had a chance to open your Bibles to Titus this past week or that you will take the opportunity this next week as we go through book by book through the New Testament now, um, trying to, to, to understand what God teaches us in each of these books as he, uh, I think, clearly and openly gives us all the instruction we need to know him and to know him well. And, uh, and there's, there's many more things in each of these books that I can cover in one Sunday. So uh, who knows if I even got the main theme sometimes. But in Titus, if you open your Bibles to Titus, you'll, you'll notice immediately that Titus is made up of lists. Uh, It's not very long. It's three chapters, but it's all lists. And, and and so for the key passages, I've put up the two spots that kind of aren't lists. We don't necessarily like lists of things we're not supposed to do so much. Uh, so, but there's a, there's a little bit here where, where uh, the Apostle Paul, as he's writing to, his, uh, his, uh, to Titus, one of the, the men that worked with him and kind of under him, uh, I think he gives a little bit of instruction here. What are we to do with these lists that make up the rest of this letter? And so I want to uh, at least begin and probably um, spend our time in some of these instructions because you can all read the lists. Uh, so if we just uh, understand what they're for, how they function in our life of discipleship, in our, in our attempts to know God, uh, then I think you can handle the lists on your own. Um, so we're going to start right here in chapter 2. And I'm going to read the first sentence. It's on the screen. You can read it. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. This is a beautiful sentence. I, it's, it's perhaps one of the most beautiful sentences ever. Uh, it, it's one of those summary statements again where each of the words uh, we can unpack like a suitcase full of treasures. And, and it's meant to be that. It's meant to bring to mind all the things that are packed into those common phrases. So, we be- begin with the grace of God, and we we 're understanding here the nature of God. who is God? Well, God is gracious for the grace of God uh, and-, and that you know we-, we have dictionary definitions we we throw out phrases like "grace means unmerited favor or getting something you didn 't deserve," or something like that. But the grace of God is just fully explained in the story that appears in the next phrase, in the next part of the sentence. The grace of God has appeared. Now that's just one word, but we should all bring to mind that packed into that word is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How did the grace of God appear? Well, it appeared in, it appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And so, when we read that little phrase, we need to bring that all back into our memories. Uh, what, what happened? What, how did God's grace appear on this earth? And it, it appeared, of course, in many different ways in the Old Testament, in the temple sacrifices and in the prophets and, and in the salvation and, and freeing of God's people in the Exodus. But it really appeared in its, its detail and its, in, in, its, in our ability to fully understand it in Jesus Christ, the one who who is fully God, one of the Trinity, the the eternally forever begotten of God, uh, put aside, humbled himself, put aside heaven, put aside all the powers and benefits of of being God and became a man, became a human. Not just as an adult human, but but as a baby and, and went through all of the experiences that we experience. He can understand all of the things that we know and understand. And he did all of that without sin, without ever rebelling against God. The grace of God appeared. It's past tense. It has happened. You can read all about it in the, in the Gospels. And that grace that appeared in Jesus Christ, His life, His death, His taking upon Himself the sins of the world, taking them down into the depths of hell, and then rising again victorious. That is the offer of salvation. And it is just that. It's an offer. If it was a, if it was a demand or if it was a, a requirement of all humans, that wouldn't be grace. That would be coercion. That would be ty- tyranny. But it's an offer. It's, it's held out. We may receive it or we may reject it. And it's for all people. We could probably camp on that sentence for, for the whole morning, couldn't we? It's beautiful. It's everything. But what we want to turn our attention to is the next phrase. And this is where we learn something that, that I, I'm guessing some of you haven't made this connection before. Maybe you all have, and I'm just the only one that was kind of odd this week as I looked at it. But the next phrase tells us the effect of accepting this salvation in our lives. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people and it teaches us to say no. It teaches us to say no. Have you ever put that together before? I mean, I use the NIV translation because it makes this part of this this verse very clear. Um, Other translations uh, don't necessarily use that word, but if you read them, they all. This is what they're saying. They, they te- it teaches us to say no. Has the grace of God in the offer of salvation taught you to say no? Do you know how to say no? Because I think this is true. In Titus, God says, If you know, want to know me, it's time you learn to say no. If you want to know God. I mean, I know if you've accepted this salvation, this offer, you already know him. But if you want to know him more, if you want to dig deep into that relationship and, and see the fruits of it in your life, God is telling us in the, in the book of Titus that we, we need to learn to say no. We need to get better at the negative. Let's unpack that. I think we can we can... We can chew on that for a while, don't you think? I think we can open our Bibles almost anywhere at random and see this playing out in one way or another. So I had pages of notes, and I had to winnow it down to two pages so we could fit it into, into the hour here. Uh, but, but I just picked out a few things. And, and I think um, I picked, of course, the the foundational Documents, the foundational ideas, creation so let's think about creation and its relationship here before, because when God created in the very first phrases of our of our of the word that He gives to us, he says that God was hovering, the spirit of God was hovering over the deep and and uh, and the the everything was formless and void. And we don't know what that means, but it, it means that, that there, there was no definition. Um, some translations say there was nothing at all and it became something, and I think that's true. But that even once there was something, it was, it was without order. It was formless and void. And as we go through the seven days of creation, what we find is it moves from chaos to order. It moves from the place where every atom and every light and every dark and every element and everything was, had, had no definition. You couldn't tell what it was, and everything's bumping into each other, and it's, it's just chaotic. There's, there's nothing there to look at. There's, there's nothing to look. Nothing's possible. And God, step by step by step, turns that into order. Or another way to look at it is He turns what was meaningless... Because when there's no definition, when nothing can do anything except just randomly bump into each other, there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's nothing happening that accomplishes anything. And then he turns that into purpose. For example, reproduce according to your kind. Every animal, every plant has a purpose. Fill the earth, a purpose. And so he's moving from meaningless to purposeful, and he's moving, I think, also from, if we just extrapolate a little bit into other parts of God's Word, from captivity to freedom. Because when, when, uh, when everything is formless and void, there's no ability. When we think of freedom, we think of the ability to do what you want. Well, there's no ability when there's no order, when there's no meaning, when there's no definition. So he's going from he, he, God's moving matter from captivity, inability to freedom and ability. I don't know if that makes sense to you let's, let's take a couple of examples it, it It comes together rather quickly. and God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered in one place, and let dry ground appear and it was so. God called the dry ground land, and he gathered the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So what we have here is a big, fat no. The water's everywhere. And God says, no, here's your boundary. There's a shoreline. Water, you can do whatever you want, but you don't come past this mark. After that, it's land. That's the place where other things play. It's a big, fat restriction, a negative, a no you come to here and no further. Now, we have a word for what happens when water somehow manages to overpower that negative. Remember the earthquake in Japan? We call that a, a tsunami. And I can tell you, I have never heard anyone wise enough to tell us what that means. We see the water come past its boundary, saying yes to where God said no. And we experience it, even though we're way over here in Canada, and that's happening way over in Japan, we experience as it as a coming apart inside of ourselves. How do you make sense of that? It makes no sense. Everything's disorderly. All of the cars and buildings and everything are turning around and bumping each other. They've lost their purpose. They've lost their meaning. Everything is chaos for that moment. It's a return to pre creation. It's a time when some element of this earth has managed to escape the negative that God put on it, the boundary, the no, you can't come farther than this, and we can't explain it. Because it's unexplainable. It's back to where things aren't explained, where they don't have meaning. It's a return to chaos. It's a it's an it's a overstepping the boundary that God set. And it's destructive. It's an undoing, a tiny little, I mean, it seems huge to us, but in the terms of the all of creation and the galaxies, it's a tiny little undoing of creation. Yeah, that negative, that ability for the shoreline to say no no to the water is pretty important, isn't it? It's quite important. Let's take another one. And God said, let the, what, let the waters teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth and cross the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with, thing with which the water teems and that move about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters of the sea and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. Now, in our minds, birds are the symbol of freedom, aren't they? The eagle, the dove, they're they're just the the epitome of just go wherever you want, do whatever you want. The ability to fly uh, seems, seems like such an impressive thing to us. But just imagine for a few minutes how many negatives are necessary for that to happen. If the mother bird says to the father bird, I'd like to give you a hug. The answer is no. Your elbows are backwards and they're covered in feathers. That's not possible. You'd have to give up the ability to fly to do that. If the mother bird says to the baby bird, I'd like to give you a kiss, the answer is no. You'll pluck his eye out. You've got this hard bony thing on the front of your face. That's not possible. It's no. The answer is no. If we come to the bird and say, I'd like to shake your hand, the answer is no. It's got claws, it's scaly, it's cold, it's ugly, we don't want to touch it. When it shows up in our soup, we, we throw up and throw the soup out. <laughs> the answer is no. If the bird says, It's rainy and cold this morning, and I'd like to crawl into a I'd like to dig a little hole like the gopher does where, where it's dry and warm. The answer is no. All you can do, bird, is pick up twigs and randomly plop them in a pile and then wiggle around it until it kind of makes a depression. And if you want it to be warm, it won't be warm for you, but it might be warm for your eggs if you actually pluck fig- feathers out of your own body and put them in there. The answer is no. You can't have a warm little cave like the Gopher. You can fly. For every positive, there has to be negatives. You can't do everything. It's not possible. And that's how God turns disorder into order. Creation is telling every bit of what is, what it cannot do, in order that it can do a few things. There's limits. The no is not just irritating. It's essential to life. The ability to say no. Now we... We don't have to go far in the Old Testament past Genesis to, uh, to experience this again. Many of you, uh, when long ago it seems now, when we were going through, uh, to, through Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, many of you tried to read those books, and maybe that's as far as you got in reading along with me as, as I go week to week. But, but they're, they're hard to get through, but there are lists of negatives, aren't there not? I mean, I mean, there's so many limitations. You can't mix one kind of thread with another kind of thread in your, in your garments. You're not supposed to have mixed marriages. You're not supposed to mix different kinds of animals together. You can't live just wherever you want. You have to live in exactly the allotted land for your family. And, uh, you can't just choose any lamb. You have to say no to all the lambs except one, the best one in the flock, in order to bring your sacrifice. And we could go on and on and on. It's just no, 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 no. We 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 all know the part of it though that is kind of the summary or the the bringing it all together. Um, we know that as the Ten Commandments, uh, kind of the the summary statement of the Old Testament law. And if we go back to our King James, which many of us memorized it in, it starts. Everyone starts with three words. What are they? Thou, thou shalt not. Ten negatives. Ten no's. How do you get to know God? You have to say no. You have to learn to say no. We can go through the Ten Commandments, but we're trying to get to Titus here. You know how it goes. Any one of you could explain to us, if you say yes to any of those tens, you're not going to have a good relationship with your friends and your spouse, and your children. You're not going to have a good relationship with God unless you can say no. It's not possible. How can you have a good friend when you want everything he has? Thou shalt not covet. How can you love someone while you're killing them? Thou shalt not murder. It's pretty basic. We, we get it. You have to be able to say no in order to have relationships in order, to, in, in order to get anywhere. And so in the Old Testament, as, as we understand it in this way, God is doing exactly the same thing he did in Genesis. He's taking chaos. He's taking disorder. A band of random slaves who've never governed themselves, who've never made a decision, have always been told what to do. And he's turning them into a nation. He's turning them into his people, and he's teaching them. To be a people of God, you have to be able to say no to some things. It's chaos otherwise. And you just read 2 Kings or Second Chronicles, you know exactly what I mean. They stop saying no to the things God told them to say no to, and, it, and it, like, like quite literally all hell breaks loose. It's, it's, it's very difficult to read, but we, we see that ourselves in our own lives and in our own uh, in our own experiences how do you turn a society a society from disorder to order by learning what to say no to and getting good at it how do you become God's people who know God and God knows them I will be your God and you will be my people by learning to say no by keeping the Covenant so let's move to Titus. That's enough of an introduction, don't you think? Yeah. Titus is unique. Um, it's written to, by the Apostle Paul uh, to, to Titus. Now Titus is a character in the New Testament who, who shows up, is kind of present everywhere, but never gets the spotlight. I, I'm assuming from that he must have been a humble man. Uh, he was, he, he's, he's kind of mentioned a, a number of different places in, in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters, which, which leads us to believe that he was almost a common co- traveling companion with, with Paul in his missionary journeys. Uh, but he he's never gets the spotlight. He's never, he's never put, put anywhere where we really notice him until this letter. And the, the, the situation here is, this is after Paul's house, house arrest in Rome, his first imprisonment, and the book of Acts stops at that first imprisonment, so we're now in, the, in a territory or a, a time period where we don't have a lot of historical details. Uh, but, but we do know that Paul traveled after his first imprisonment, before his second one, and, uh, and he traveled various different places, and one of the places he went was Crete, the island of Crete. And uh, when Paul got there, he didn't have to plant a church because there were already believers there. There already was a church doesn't seem like he, he stayed all that long, but he kind of got to know the people, got to know what they were good at, what their problems were, and then he moved on to visit other churches and encourage them and build them up. And he left Titus behind on Crete to kind of pull that group of believers together into a church, into a, a people of God. And, um, and Crete's different than, than the other places we visited in our journeys with Paul. Because, well, I think largely because it's an island. It's an island nation. And it, you know, for, for our boats today, it's not very far to, ch- to, to, to sail from Athens to Crete. But in, in those days, that was a very, very dangerous journey. Uh, you could easily get swept out into the Atlantic Ocean by a storm if you took that on. Ships stayed much closer to the shore. So Crete was isolated. It was its own thing. And, uh, and to understand what it is, maybe, maybe just some, some kinds of uh, phrases that were used in the ancient world would, would help. Uh, it would go something like this. If you went to the marketplace, let's say in Corinth or Ephesus or Rome or, or any of those places, and, you, and you, you had a pack of vegetables on your back that you'd grown and you wanted to sell them, So a a guy had a scale, and he says, I'll buy those vegetables for this weight of gold. So you put it on the scales, you put the gold on there, and you say, okay, I'll take the gold, you can have the vegetables. And you go home, and you find out that it's actually lead just covered with a thin veneer of gold. You would mutter under your your breath, that Cretian, that dirty Cretian." That's what you'd say. If if your kids were roughhousing around the house... And uh they knocked over a clay pot and it crashed on the floor and spilled all the contents all over the place. You might mutter under your breath, or you might say aloud to your kids, You little Cretans. Or if your uncle you were having a family meeting and you're you're thinking about your uncle and, and, and you're talking about how, how you know he's married and has kids and yet he's out at the bar where the where the ladies are and and he's uh he comes home with a big black eye and a, and a, so, and a broken arm because he was brawling in the street at 3 a.m. And he'd say, Uncle Joe's such a Cretian." So that was the kind of way that was used. There's, there's documents uncovered from the ancient world where people are writing letters to each other and stuff like that, and they use the word Cretian in that way as an insult, particularly for liars, but then also for any kind of person who is, um, who is uh, living a kind of undisciplined life. So that tells you probably all you need to know about Cretian culture, right? It was, it was bad enough that throughout the entire Roman world, people used it as an insult for bad behavior. So that was the culture. That's, the, that's where the church was. Um, Cretians the word Cretian was synonymous with liars and wild living. There were, they were a society of yes. Do you want a drink? Yes. Do you want another drink? Yes. Do you want another drink? Yes. There would never be a no in that, in that trajectory in Cretan society. Do, do, you, wanna, do, you, wa- do you want to uh, tell me about your fishing trip? Oh, yeah, I'll tell you. The fish was, you know, known for deception and lying. Um, do you feel like punching that guy? Yes. Okay, do it. Whatever you want. No limits. Um, Never a no. And Do you want to lay in bed all day and never do anything? Never do anything productive? Yes. Do you want to uh, defy authority? Even slaves were known in Crete for defying their masters. Completely lacking in self-control. Unable to say no. I'm just wondering if maybe that sounds familiar. Living in a society where it's virtuous to say yes to every passion and every desire. Maybe this letter was written to us. And into this situation, Paul leaves Timothy to put this church in order. And what he's saying, I believe, is if you want to know God, it's time to say no. It's time to learn how. And he does that with lists. There's, I, I went through... I think there's 12 lists that I identified. Um, four things an elder should be, six things necessary for ministry, seven traits ministers should have, five characters, and it goes on and on and on. And uh, altogether, I, 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 I counted 67 items on these lists, and some of them are positive, things you should do or things you should be. A lot of them are negative, things you should stop doing, things you should should not be. Um, and uh, And so... So Paul is writing back to Timothy to give him instruction but I think he's also giving writing back to Timothy to give him authority because if Timothy's going to say, you know, to the uh, to the older women stop being so drunk, you know, they're going to say, "Well, who's how who are you to say that?" Well, I've got this letter from Paul. Oh Paul, we kind of know who that is. He's got the authority to teach on how to be a church and so okay. And so in this process, Paul is encouraging Timothy to take this church that is chaotic and disorderly, where people are fighting in the church, where people are coming to church drunk, where people are, are, are cheating their neighbors in the marketplace, and all of this activity within the Christians, because that's the society they lived in, so they were kind of living like the people around them, and that's how they grew up, that's how they were raised, it's hard to overcome that kind of stuff. And he's saying, let's take this disorderly people who can't get very far in their relationship with God because they don't know how to say no, and let's put that into order. Let, let's teach them how to say no and what to say no to. And uh, that'll be counterculture. That'll be a, that will be contrary to the people around them. But, but it, it, it needs to be taught. It needs to be uh, put out there. Um, it's not to inhibit them. The no's are not there to inhibit them, the negatives. They're there to produce the ability to make better choices. And when I read that, and when I come to this uh, key phrase here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, it reads to me like the opening of a door. You've probably seen a picture like that, where, where there, where, or a movie or something, where, where everything's chaotic and dark and destructive, and, and, and you open a door... And on the other side, there's green lawns and bright light and, and nicely situated houses with beautiful gardens and, and trails into the mountains and high places and, and sunshine and gentle rain. But you have to say no to all of those things before you can get into that beautiful land. Maybe in your heart or in your thoughts or in your relationships. The potential for beauty is there. But it's only possible when we learn to say no. I'm not going to go through the lists. You're perfectly capable of reading them. So just keep in mind chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, and we're ready now to read the rest of it. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Are we God's people? Will God look at the Wainwright Evangelical Church, Free Church and say, There is a people who are my very own eager to do good. Well, that's only possible if we learn to say no to ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, even in this present age where every voice is telling us to do something else. We might be Christians, but are we his people? Are we his people? Do others look upon the church and say, There is a people of God. And understand that our God is a God of grace who has appeared in Jesus Christ and has taught us to say no. Do I need to explain? My illustration. And you know the, the Volkswagen Beetle with the surfboard and cooler on the roof. That's a cultural symbol of freedom, isn't it? Now, maybe not so much up here in Alberta, I mean but we understand the symbol. It's because it was the car that even the inner city people living in, in absolute destitution and violence could afford. And if you could get that car and you could drive to the beach, suddenly the world opened up. When you get to that expanse of sky and water, your mind, your heart feels freer. It was the way to get there, a symbol of freedom. Now on this pile over here, every brick wants to do whatever it wants. No brick is willing to take one spot and hold it. No brick is willing to commit to one thing. They all want to be on the top of the pile where everyone can notice. They don't want to be limited to one position, to one place. But over here, the bricks have submitted to the Maker. And the Maker has said, You sit right here, lock in. There's purpose, there's meaning. There's something beautiful to be accomplished together if you accept that. If you say no to all the other places you could be, to all the other things you could be, to all the other experiences you could have and commit to this one. I will do God's will in my life. I will obey His word. And you know, some of the pieces, in fact, probably most of the pieces, you can't even see. They're down there inside the build holding it together, giving it strength. No one's ever going to sing their praises. No one's ever even going to see or notice they're there. But if they're not committed to their spot and saying no to all the other possibilities, it doesn't hold together. It falls apart. There's no strength. It's probably where most of us fit in the church, in the place where we never get any praise. But if you don't hold your position. The church falls apart. If you don't continue to love and say no to hate and discord and slander and lying. If you don't continue to offer people the best of intentions, even though maybe you have reasons to think they did something against you. In other words, forgive before they ask for it. It's someone no one will ever see. No one will ever know you did it. But that's what holds it together. That's what makes it possible to do something amazing in God's world. We have to say no to the other possibilities. What is God speaking? I'm going to end here, and I'm going to leave it with you. I suspect many of you, the Holy Spirit has already put very clear in your heart what it is you're saying yes to, that you should be saying no. I suspect you already know. But if you don't, open your Bible this afternoon to Titus. There's 67 things there. I'm sure one of them fits your situation. God will point it out. There's no freedom if there's no no. There's no life. There's no health. There's no beauty. There's no meaning. There's no purpose until we learn to say no. Maybe we could even just say this. There's no time to get to know God unless we learn to say no to some of our desires and some of our goals and ambitions. We're too busy because we don't know how to say no. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, and it teaches us to say no. I'll ask the worship team to lead us as we meditate on these thoughts.